Welcome to Wall Street Weekly, a show where your hosts, George and Patrick, cut through the financial jargon to keep you educated and informed about the markets that affect our lives. Enjoy the show. You're listening to Wall Street Weekly, the overperforming, highly informing, best 30 minutes on radio on Radio Free Hillsdale. 101.7 FM. What do you think of the intro, Patrick? I try to try to change it up on you every week. Well, pretty presumptive, but I think we can go with it. Okay. Well, I guess maybe that's a yes. Uh, pretty non-committal. We got a lot to cover this week. Patrick's talking about the retail investor, which is kind of a two-part thing that leads into one of his favorite topics of all time, the meme stock. But before we get into that, you know, the market's been down a little, and that that leads me really well into a story that I've been wanting to do ever since we started the show, and that's about ARK Invest. Now, Patrick, I don't know how familiar you are with ARK Invest. Had you heard about it before I brought it to you a couple days ago? I have not heard of ARK Invest before, no. So today, ARK Invest was down 4% among concerns of rising interest rates and labor data, which the broader markets were down today, just to give a little you know, current event, little update. But essentially, ARK Invest is one of the biggest ETFs and has for sure been one of the most popular ETFs over the last couple of years, specifically during the COVID-19 pandemic. So just to give you a little background on why it became so popular, and then give my own two cents on the topic. Essentially, ARK Invest was started by Kathy Wood in 2014, and she wanted to make an ETF, an exchange-traded fund, which basically allows investors, specifically retail investors for our sake, the chance to get exposure to a broad range of equities at a very low management fee. And we'll, we'll go into ETFs. That'll be another episode where we specifically talk about those. But anyways, the big funds that she was working for at the time did not think that a disruptive technology ETF would really be that good of an idea. So what she did is she decided that she was going to start her own ETF and actually got quite a bit of funding to start off in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And before we get too far down the road, Patrick, do you have any idea of what you think disruptive technologies might be? Semiconductors. So she actually does have uh, an ETF that focuses on semiconductors, I believe. Some of the other ones, her innovation specifically focuses on gene editing, electric vehicles, media streaming, video conferencing, 3D printing, artificial intelligence, etc. And from 2014 to 2021, her fund actually did quite amazing, and that's why she gained a lot of popularity. She was up... 650% from when she started the fund in 2014 to early 2021, which outperformed the NASDAQ, which we talked about the NASDAQ had been on a roll during that time, by about 2.5 times, which is just incredible returns. And because of that, many people considered her the great modern investor. And we like to talk about Warren Buffett a lot on the show, but people were talking about, okay, maybe his strategy is a little more outdated. And we need to start investing more in companies for what they do and and planning for the future. What's going to be the next big thing? Like, what's going to be the next iPhone? That sort of thing. Okay, so it's mainly, would you say it's mainly technology-based? Sort of like the NASDAQ, I guess? It's like the NASDAQ, but even more aggressive in the sense. We we mentioned how the NASDAQ is comprised of big companies. It's weighted more towards the bigger one. Her focus, at least at the beginning, and we'll talk about how there is some nuance to this, is companies that might not even be profitable now. Teladoc, I don't believe, has ever turned a profit, but her idea is that that's the future of healthcare. So you'll see she invests in there. Hmm. Or gene editing, a lot of those companies aren't expected to be profitable till 2030. So they won't show a lot of weight in the NASDAQ. They're going to make up huge percentages of her portfolio. And I found a quote from an ARK supporter 
that seem to sum up a majority of the fund's philosophy. And it's the idea that a fund like ARK only needs one or two winners out of 50 companies to create tremendous success. It's a game of odds, which I'll talk about that later and why I think that's actually a flawed philosophy. From a base level, that seems like a pretty good idea. Apple's up thousands of percent since it was started. So if you had even a hundred companies, you picked Apple, you'd still be a very rich man. So that's where it's going with the disruptive companies. You just start with um, companies that you think are the future that are really small right now and expect at least a few of them to skyrocket down the line. Yeah, and they don't even necessarily have to be super small, but yeah, that's the right idea. That okay. You know that a majority of them are going to fail, but the, the ones that succeed are going to carry your portfolio. And her fund actually worked quite well for a period of time. Her fund is now down 75% from its peak in 2021, which is an enormous sell-off. And had you invested at inception, you would only be up 90% compared to 180% if you had invested in a NASDAQ index ETF. Another interesting aside is she lost out on about 30 to 35% return on her Twitter investment. She actually sold out right before Elon Musk confirmed his acquisition of Twitter and lost out a lot of money. I know her supporters weren't very happy about that. Hmm. But does this mean Kathy Wood is ruined? We, we've talked about how she's lost a lot of money. So is it bad for me to be punching her while she's down? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I feel like he can get back up again. I, I'm, I'm sure she's got an interesting and unique strategy. That's for sure. Yeah. I don't feel so bad. She's worth $140 million. <laughs> You know, if I was worth $140 million, Pat, I think I would be I would be okay with some random kids in Hillsdale, Michigan, criticizing my strategy. But that's just me. Mm-hmm. So let's start out with some misconceptions about ARK Invest. First off, her fund's philosophy of innovative technology might not give you as much exposure to the next big thing as you think. And that's because they already invest in a lot of big companies. In 2015, four of the top 10 holdings included Netflix, Apple, Tesla, and Amazon. Yes, so she is investing in these disruptive technologies. However, she is wading heavily still to these big companies, which did very well in the 2010s and and made up a lot of that growth. And in quarter four of 2017, We'll see that Tesla and Amazon are still big drivers uh, of the fund's performance. But another criticism of her is that a lot of her gains have been based on the successes of Bitcoin. And Grayscale Bitcoin ETF cracked the top 10 holdings. And from 2017 to 2021, Tesla and Bitcoin had about 1,000% returns. Wow. The danger with that is there one or two companies can drive the performance, which which is part of the strategy. But if you don't have one or two of the companies, that, that's when things become bad. And much of the fund's growth, like mentioned, was driven by huge bets on Bitcoin and Tesla and also benefited much from the appreciation of big companies. But I think where people really started to notice her is how well she did during the COVID-19 pandemic. The COVID-19 pandemic really brought on a wave of these innovative technologies. For example, I mentioned Teladoc before. That was a fairly large holding for her, making up over a billion dollars. The adoption of things like these made investors really excited about the future and made there be a run-up on the prices so that she actually was up 153% in 2020, which is incredible performance. This is a large reason for the rapid appreciation during this time was those COVID technologies. A few criticisms I have of her is she's not a consistently good stock picker, but like we said, I think we're going to push that aside that she hits one or two times. And I feel like most people generally aren't consistently good, right? Yeah. Besides maybe Buffett, who (laughs) I, I very much enjoy if you haven't figured that out by now. But we're also looking at one of her many ETFs and had one of them had an 163% year in 2020, we would have claimed her a genius. She has more darts to throw at the dartboard 
than if she had managed only one ETF. So that's something to keep in mind. The, the counterpoint to what I'm saying is, okay, she hasn't done as well as the NASDAQ if we look at a general time frame, but at least she helped the people who invested early to fund their retirement, to make a lot of money, right? That's probably a fair, fair yeah. thought. Mm -hmm. The problem, and you'll see this throughout investing, if you do any form of investing, is that people like to pick stocks when they're at their top. The better she does, and maybe it's a curse for her, is the better she does, the more people want in on those returns. Wherever she hits the peak, that's when the most amount of people are going to be invested in. And because of that, nearly 90% of the people who invested in her fund over the course of this have lost money on it. And I see why. I mean, if you're buying consistently at the top of the at the price level, then it's you've got less room to grow and more room to fall. And and to put that in perspective, if you would have invested after the COVID dip in 2020 and had no one added additional money into her fund, it would have been worth less than $5 billion. But instead, from 20 from after the dip in 2020, to its peak in, I believe it was March of 2021, $23 billion of new investment had come into her fund. And because of that, everyone who has invested after that point lost money. And just a few more things for Kathy Wood. So far at this point, I feel like I've been attacking Kathy Wood from maybe kind of more of a secondary source, maybe looking at her performance. But I also disagree with some of the things she said on Twitter. Oh, okay. Here's a tweet from a few days ago. One more thought, ARK Invest has a five-year investment time horizon. Now that the most brutal interest rate in history is near an end, growth stocks in general and innovation-based strategies in particular should make up for lost time. Now, this is to say that, okay, interest rates, they're probably going to start cutting rates within the next year once they see unemployment and inflation. And unemployment start to go up and inflation start to go down. Okay. And, you know, that makes sense. Easy money, economies opening up. Conceptually, maybe that makes sense, but history doesn't show the same way. So first, the Fed came out a couple weeks after her comments to state that they'd have to continue to raise interest rates. Mm. The near future is probably not as near as once thought. And the economy is still relatively hot right now. And retail investors have really been keeping their money in the market over this last drawdown. Now, you're probably wondering, okay, what does that mean? Well, the stocks that she invests in, because they are very risky, they cater more towards the retail investor versus the institutions who don't want to take on that risk. And what that means is that if any sort of recession really hits, it's going to affect the general population worse than it is the institutions. We've seen that in every case. Unemployment hit, hurts the average person more than it's going to hurt Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan. Yeah, yeah, okay. Once unemployment starts to go up, this is just my thought process. Once unemployment goes up and once the, the average American starts to feel it, her funds aren't going to do as well as maybe some of the, the more institutionally invested stocks. And finally, the stock market ran very hot when rates were at 5.25% in 2007. And that seems somewhat similar to where we are right now. And obviously there are differences. But the worst of the recession was when rates were at 0.18%. And that sounds weird. Okay, when money is easy, why why did we hit the worst of the recession? Yeah. The interest rate raises that the Fed has been doing, they're not going to immediately impact or, or resonate throughout the economy. They take a while to take impact. And as we can see, 2007 shows that although the interest rates were high, by cutting the rates, it was actually a reactionary force to the unemployment and the lack of investment that was going on in the economy during the time. So the Fed cuts interest rates to 
sort of defend the economy against the recession? Yeah, they're trying to stimulate the economy so more people borrow and more money is going around and more spending and investing is occurring. However, if they don't do that quickly enough, in this case, you know, it could potentially lead into a recession. And I'm not saying that Kathy Wood is wrong. I'm not saying that I'm right. I think the point is the way she's looking at it is very oversimplistic and I think in some ways misleading uh, based on the fact that a lot of her investors are just average people. And the idea that, oh, once the government cuts rate, everything's going to be okay. I think that's a really dangerous thought process and, and a very poor understanding of historical economic events. And my conclusion from this is that Kathy Wood will outperform during strong bull markets uh, where people are really excited about the future. However, her misunderstanding of historical events that we've talked about, I think should lead to some level of concern for any investor looking to take a position in the ARK Innovations ETF. It is also a very dangerous investment strategy. Diversification, yes, you can diversify away some risk. But Patrick, you remember, you took the story about the tech bubble. If you had invested in 50 dot-com companies in 2000 or 2001. If you're buying, buying all in the same industry, yeah, what happens when the, in, the whole industry goes down? You could say, oh, she's you know doing diversifying across you know, biotech and, and different industries like that. But at the end of the day, the first companies to fall are generally the companies that don't give consistent revenue. They're the companies that investors might be a little worried that, okay, they might not be able to pay back debt. We're gonna, they're gonna be the first companies we're not lending to. So they're the first domino to fall. They're the least likely to survive in a deep recession. So yeah, I mean, in 2001, if you would have invested even in dot-com companies across many industries, still probably would have lost 70 to 90% of your money. But for sure, I think the ARC story is a great transition into, as we talk about the retail investor and what the average person can do with their money. So a retail investor is a non-professional investor that invests by buying and selling securities. So George, you and I are both retail investors. Yep, that's correct. The term retail investor includes the subcategories of individual investor, angel investor, and sweat equity investor. So we'll get into these really quick. So an individual investor is just someone who buys and sells securities for their personal accounts, like one of us. An angel investor is a person or a group that contributes money to small startup companies to get them going in exchange for equity in the company. Equity as in a piece of the company. Yep. So Shark Tank would be a, a good example of angel investment. And then a sweat equity investor is someone who contributes to a company by putting in labor and time for the company and they're paid back in shares of the stock. So it's definitely a different game there, but it's still a thing. And I think for most people, they're probably at least this to a certain extent. Most companies offer some stock based comp can at least large publicly traded companies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I, when I worked at Home Depot in the past summer, one of the perks that they had was a discounted um, share price. Did you take advantage of that at all? I never could. There was like a specific time frame that you had to order. Okay. It, and I never worked. I only worked for the summer, not okay. in the time gotcha. frame, so it didn't work out for me. Not a big Home Depot shareholder then. Gotcha. No. Okay. It was expensive too. Yeah. So the opposite of the retail investor is the institutional investor. George, do you want to just explain this one real quick? Yeah. Really any large investment firm or hedge fund or JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, you think of the big guys. Um, but also like Michigan's pension fund, that would also be considered an institutional investor. It doesn't mean they necessarily invest their own money. And in many cases, they're investing your money for you, uh, but they generally have a lot of funds. So 
With the earlier retail investor, retail investing really launched around the industrial revolution. And this was the time of the industrial giants, right? JP Morgan, Andrew Carnegie, John D. Rockefeller, to name a few. So under the post-World War II era. So until the post-World War II era, investing was really in the hands of the very wealthy. So George, can you explain what did it look like to be a retail investor in the early 1900s, like around the time of the Great Depression? How does one buy a stock at that time? Yeah, there's no logging into Robinhood or E-Trade to do that. A lot of it, or actually all of it for that matter, is done with physical exchange. So the place to be is New York, trading shares, paper shares of stock on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, which for most people wasn't really an option. And what a lot of people would invest in is bonds, because you know that even if you can't find someone who's willing to buy it off of you, you know that the company or the government that issued the bond has a legal obligation. So that's what a lot of people did. You'd buy a bond from a government agency. You knew that in 10 years, even if you couldn't sell it to someone in the meantime, you'd get your money plus some interest. Okay. So then we move into the age of the stock brokerage. And a stock broker is basically, George, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's basically just someone who, someone or something that matches buyers and sellers of, tr of stocks. Yeah, they're the middleman. Yep, correct. So stock brokering is not a new thing. Stock brokering occurred all the way back in the Renaissance uh, with government bonds and possibly earlier. So the Philadelphia Stock Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange were started in the 1790s as small agreements or contracts that a few investors used to trade securities. And then it leads to recently, a few de decades ago, the private company Charles Schwab starts to broker stocks in 1975 and this greatly increased retail participation so george during the time of the stockbrokers before the average retail investor had the internet what did it look like for a retail investor to buy a stock it was very difficult to get the information there's a lot of different drawbacks you had during that time versus now but i just wanted to walk you through what it might look like and so you you might go to the library print off reports do the research for the stocks you want to buy and hopefully that research is somewhat up to date whether that's value line giving you research within a couple of months. So once you've done that, you've gone through all that paper and figured out what you want to invest in. You drive down or you call it your broker and tell them what you want to buy. And it doesn't stop there. It's not like you just put in an order. It's put in right away. No, no red tape because you do have to pay one to 3% commission on trades, which many times also at a minimum amount, some as much as $45 to over a hundred dollars. And that's the minimum amount of commission that you'd have to pay. And then you'd pray the companies that you own don't have major price drops before you have time to call your broker to sell. And what I mean by that is you had to be constantly in the news. It's not like now you're going to get a push notification on your iPhone that the company you have is down by 10% today. If you're not paying attention and you need the money for retirement and something like COVID hits and you don't realize what's going on in the markets or, or a number of other catastrophic events, you're kind of left hanging. Yeah, that makes me think of during the Great Depression, there are some pictures that you can find of people lining up at the stock exchange and it's just packed because they all have to be like physically present right to sell their shares yeah and then it also gives the institutions a huge advantage because they can liquidate their shares way faster than the people because they have seats on the stock exchange and they can make agreements very quickly. So moving on to the electronic age, the NASDAQ was the first electronic stock exchange. It opened in 1971. So electronic exchanges allowed for near instant executions of trades. So naturally, it took off with the rise of technology. Buyers and sellers through technology are matched digitally within milliseconds versus 
the physical exam uh, physical transactions that we were just talking about in the days of the stockbroker and small private private trading companies such as Robinhood began to sprout up over the past two decades and now trading is very accessible compared to what it was a hundred years ago at least. One just has to open an account, fund it, and then start trading. And I think it's a really cool concept that we're able to do that now. That's something even I know my dad always talks about having to go to the library to look up stuff that we're able to do that instantaneously now. But next week, we're going to explore a little of what happens when that goes too far in Patrick's favorite episode, the meme stock episode. Yeah. So we're going to talk about meme stocks on our next episode. We're just going to be analyzing the effects of the rise of the retail investor and how it really became a force to be reckoned with. Now, as we wrap up the show, it's important to note that George and Patrick will be on spring break next week. Well, we're excited to bring you an episode during that time. We're not going to be able to bring you your current event story, which is unfortunate considering that there's a jobs report this Friday and a CPI number coming out Tuesday. The expectation is if inflation is cooling towards the 2% target rate, that would likely be a good thing for the equity market. And a rise in unemployment rate might actually indicate that the Fed's policies are effective in slowing down the economy. Either way, we're excited to report back on the results of that meeting when we come back from break on the 23rd. With that being said, we're thrilled you tuned in to Wall Street Weekly with us today. If you missed any part of the episode, we post them on Twitter at Wall Street Pod. Thank you for listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7.